beginning Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. It says this, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you? This only would I learn of you. Received you the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are ye so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if it be yet in vain? He therefore that ministereth to you the Spirit, and worketh miracles among you, doeth he it by the works of the law, or by the hearing of faith? Even as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. And the scripture, foresaying that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. So then, they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident. For the just shall live by faith. And the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. I'll conclude our reading this morning. Please forgive any of the reading mistakes I may have made. We're going to comment about a number of parts of these verses. But our focus verse this morning is going to be verse 13 of our scripture reading today. It says this, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. The title of our message this morning is derived from that 13th verse, from the text that says, Made a curse for us. He was made a curse for us. And I want to begin this morning by just reading a very brief something to you um, that encompasses perhaps the purpose that we have this morning in bringing this message. It says this, As a church... Duty demands that the whole counsel of God be declared. Messages about holiness, sin, history, society, moral duties, and creation must be proclaimed. We cannot neglect the teachings on salvation, the end, the judgment, and a great many things. Yet in the haste to carry out so great a duty... Let us never omit the most blessed and central truth of all, that Christ died for our sins and rose to give us life. We shall sing many songs, but let our anthem always be, He became sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. This morning, as we consider this truth, I want to say, begin by saying that the Bible is full of so many things. And we all, through our Sunday school, our personal private devotions and study, the preaching of God's Word and the singing of our songs, we touch on many of these subjects and perhaps discuss them in great detail. And yet in our midst of doing and proclaiming and talking and speaking about all these things that are contained in God's holy word, as that reading just said, we ought to never go too far from the central truth of all the scriptures. 
The reason why we gather this morning is not so that we just might learn to live a better life. The reason why we gather this morning is not for self-help, although that may be a byproduct. The reason why we gather this morning is not so that you might feel good for a few moments and check off your uh, duty of righteous deeds list. You might add this action to your compartment of various things that you carry out every week. But we gather here this morning, and at the center of it is one person who did something for us. I think today that church has drifted. The concept of gathering together has very often drifted. We could point at others, we could look at our society at large, and we could say it's drifted into entertainment purposes. That people who still desire a moral standard, yet did not like the the things, the traditions, and the manners that had been carried out in former years, and so they layered on top of it all sorts of new, perhaps some for the better and perhaps some for the worse. But at its core, it was, we want to come for entertainment purposes, Some of us may enter into the house of God out of guilt and duty. Some of us may come because we like music. Because we like the people that are here. Many of you, this church perhaps being unique among many, your families grew up here and your grandparents and great-grandparents and some of you can trace back many generations of people who were buried up in this cemetery and Perhaps you feel a sense of duty to come here. And so, in and out, each week, we come. Some of us assigned certain tasks, others observe. And church within our hearts, and our gathering within our hearts and minds can become about a great many things, not all of which is bad. But when we talk about the central thing this morning... We come to worship the man, Jesus Christ. Because Christ has done something for us. He has accomplished something for us. That no man, that no woman, that no being, angels, no one had the power or ability to accomplish save Jesus Christ. So when we gather week in and week out and as the habit becomes a norm and as the norm causes our eyes to glaze over as so many habits do let us beware that this habit be like none other because this one ought to arouse our hearts ought to captivate our minds And set our focus upon one whose supremacy far outdoes the greatness of any. And this scripture so concisely reveals to us the central theme of the gospel message. Yes, layered within this translation and layered within this thought are a great many things that are difficult to understand. And we don't seek today to get into the history of these things and the comparison to Abraham and so many things that I think as we go through this this Bible and as we can go through this text, we can see so many big words and such an unfamiliar syntax and such an unfamiliar quotes to the Old Testament that we lose the central part of what Paul is trying to say. He's trying to tell us about something called the Great Exchange. There's a poem I'll read to you this morning. And it's called The Blessed Exchange. It's from the Puritans back early in our country's history. And I don't know who wrote this. It was considered a Puritan prayer that they would often recite over and over and over. And here's what it reads. Christ was all anguish that I might be all joy. Cast off that I might be brought in. 
trodden down as an enemy, that I might be welcomed as a friend. Surrendered to hell's worst, that I might attain heaven's best. Stripped, that I might be clothed. Wounded, that I might be healed. A thirst, that I might drink. Tormented, that I might be comforted. Made a shame, that I might inherit glory. Entered darkness, that I might have eternal light. My Savior wept that all tears might be wiped from my eyes. He groaned that I might have endless song. Endured all pain that I might have unfading health. Bore a thorn crown that I might have a glory diadem. Bowed his head that I might uplift mine. Experienced reproach that I might receive welcome. Closed his eyes in death that I might gaze on unclouded brightness, expired, that I might live forevermore. Christ was our substitute. Truth so deeply rooted in this scripture, the theme of all. And yet this morning I endeavor to refresh that in your mind. Renew its sense of beauty before you today. Because what we speak of this morning are not fairy tales. What we talk about this morning is not some cute story that might bring a moment of relief to our mind in times of sorrow. But what we talk about this morning is what angels and saints in heaven at this very moment, Harold prays for this. And for all of eternity, of all the words that you speak on earth, of all the subjects that you might dive into, of all the expertise that you develop, all of those things will long be forgotten in eternity. You will not speak of this world You will not speak of all the things that you did and that you accomplished, perhaps the things that we glory in, perhaps the things that we have certain symbols and we hang on our walls and we put frames around our degrees and our accomplishments. None of those things will ever be spoken of. I would even venture to say that when we get to heaven, our testimony will be less spoken of than our praise for the one who enabled us to give a testimony. For at the core of our testimony lies this truth. Christ died for all sinners. And as we look in that unnumbered company of people, beholding the lamb that was slain, we will call out praises for his greatness, not daring to put our story above his praise. No, our story will only supplement, will only add to the glory of the one who is slain. Here, Paul, he so concisely, as he does often through the scriptures, he tells us this profound truth that I hope echoes in your heart and that when you're discouraged, when you're at the end of your rope, if anything can grant hope and relief. It ought to be the knowledge of what Christ has done for you. Paul here begins this by, I believe, addressing what lies at the core of what we attempt to grasp a hold of in light of our sin. Or in other words, this morning, there are many people, and perhaps you are here this morning, and you're somewhat distantly familiar with the, with the scriptural truth that I'm talking about today. Perhaps you're distantly familiar and you've heard all of the catchphrases. Christ died for our sins. That he rose for our justification. And you may affirm those truths. But do you understand the deep implications of what's being spoken of? There are many people today that wonder about, that say the right things, and that read the right books, and that repeat the right mantras. 
And yet they are void of understanding of the depth of these simple truths. What I've concluded, the more that I study the scriptures, the more that I read the opinions of other men about the deep things of God, is that the most blessed truth that can ever be known is when you plunge deeper into the most simple ones. It's not in some stream that, that comes from the ocean. It's just in the heart of the ocean. That's where you find the deep majesty of truth that God has. And nothing is greater than this idea that Jesus, born of a virgin, came into a broken and sinful world, was made under the law. What does that mean? Well, this morning, that's exactly what Paul is trying to address here because I believe at the forefront of, of people's minds that when cultures get together and they form new religions, here's what we find emerge from that. That people in their own hearts and minds are aware of their brokenness and their sin. They know they fall short. And so what they do is they create all of these standards that they can reach. And what this text refers to as the law. They create laws. They create standards. And they say, if I can just attain this standard, if I can just reach the heights of obedience in this fashion, then perhaps when I get to heaven or whatever lies in the beyond, then maybe there will be a God and he might pardon me for the things that I have done wrong. I would say many people today that even know the truth, they've read the scriptures and they've come to the clear, what I would argue, the clear conclusion that the scriptures lay out for us, that no man is justified by the works of the law, but only by the hearing of faith, that it is only by repenting of our sins and putting faith in Christ. And many people give lip service to that truth and they say, you know, that's true. You cannot do good works You have to repent of your sins and believe in Christ. And yet still, after they presume to have done that, there remains this lingering hesitation and doubt and discomfort that their obedience is still in some way uh, secondarily necessary just in case as a plan B. And so if you inquire and you say, Well, tell me about when you were saved. Tell me about when you put faith in Christ. They may recount to you some experience where they gave a profession, where they uh, prayed a prayer, where they said something that their preacher put them through. And yet their lingering in the back of their heart and mind is still this hesitation. Yeah, but something I still feel condemnation for my sin. I still at times see my nakedness before God. And I feel shame. You know, that's true in a natural sense. When a person is naked, they feel shameful. And I believe there's multiple reasons to that. But one of those reasons is to reflect that same spiritual truth that we experience when we know that we are completely revealed. That our motives Our intentions, our actions are completely displayed before someone. And in that we feel shame. We turn. We don't want to face. And even if you have to face it, you know, I noticed here not too many months ago, I went to a courtroom. And I was sitting in that courtroom and person after person came up and was facing the judge. And I watched as almost every single one of them as they faced the court had their head down. Didn't look at the judge. And when they turned and they walked towards the crowd, guess what they did? They didn't make eye contact with people. They hung their head in shame because they were embarrassed as to what they did. The Bible teaches us here that God in his his wisdom gave to us a law. And so what people have done all throughout time, even to this present day, whether intentionally and explicitly or whether subconsciously, either way, they take that law 
And they try in some fashion to justify part of themselves by that law in hopes that when we all enter this great unknown that none of us have been to before, that at least as a plan B, I can satisfy my anticipation. I can satisfy and protect myself from fear and guilt because I think I've been good enough. And yet Paul here decisively, harshly speaks the language of the law. And I want you to hear this this morning. If in the back of your mind, you're thinking, I'm not sure about what happens when I die, but I'm going to try to be good enough just so that if I didn't do the right thing, God will see my good deeds and he'll forgive me. I want to state clearly this morning what Paul is saying here. That is not going to happen. No man, no woman is justified by the works of the law. Here's what he says. He quotes from the law. This is really important. He goes back to the book of Deuteronomy, I believe it is, chapter 26. Let's see, it's chapter 27, verse 26. He goes back to this, and he quotes one of the most important aspects of the law. And here's what he says. For as many as are under the, excuse me, for as many, this is verse 10 in Galatians. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, here's the quote. Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Now, small words, but oh, powerful meanings. Cursed is Everyone. Everyone. Now that is so opposite to the way people think today. Right? There are many people that would assume, because I stand and I wear this, and I stand behind this book board, and I have some title prior to my name, preacher or minister or elder, or you may even look and you say, you know what, there are people of a much loftier position. You see these ministers on television that have followings of thousands and perhaps millions you see people from all over the world with different, right, different levels of righteousness as we assume, as we perceive. And we tailor everyone in our own minds on some imaginative hierarchy. That all of these people are more righteous and they have figured out the tricks to life and the tricks to being holy. Well, let me save you the short of it. That's not true. Nobody has figured out sin. You know, here a few weeks ago, there's a, a preacher that called me. Just started preaching a couple weeks, or excuse me, a couple months ago. And he was saying, he said, I want to ask you some personal questions. I don't even, I'm embarrassed to even ask this. He said, but when I get up to preach, I'm, I, I, I get really distracted. Because I worry about my suit. And, and what people are thinking. Or I want people to think that I'm a good speaker. Or I'm afraid that when I misspeak, that somebody's going to think something. Or I see sometimes the faces on the, the people that I'm preaching to, and, and I'm wondering, what in the world are they thinking? And he was asking for advice. And here's what I told him. Well, there's a part of that Satan is always going to use against you. You see, our, our enemy will do everything that he can, and he's smart. And so what he does is he, he rotates the darts that he uses against us. At the moment that we seem to be getting a handle on what he is throwing at us, he quickly changes. He quickly adopts a new method to get us. And then when we're least expecting it, he goes back to an old one that we'd long forgotten about. This morning I woke up and I laughed. Came over to the church real early. Didn't pay attention much to this jacket, this tie, because I didn't have it on. When I left home, I put it on this morning. And 
can't see, I've got a little stain right there. So part of me wanted to run home and change. And I kind of laughed to myself. This preacher just called a few weeks ago. And I thought, well, it's amazing what Satan can do. You see, my point in telling you all this is you never come to a point where you conquer sin. Where you conquer temptation. Why? Because we're so fallen. Everyone, this this scripture said, cursed is everyone. You know, one of the things that I don't like about modern Christian culture is that, and this was spoken about a little bit on Wednesday night, Sister Allie brought up how, you know, in these these children's Bibles, how we, we sometimes sensationalize or we depict them and it embellishes certain things. And I think one of the wonderful things about the scripture is that the Bible does not embellish these great men of God and women of God. We learn about their flaws. We learn about the things that they absolutely failed at. We see the bottom often of their depravity. And one of the remarkable things as you go and you read the Old Testament and the New Testament and how it accentuates Christ is that person after person that you might admire in the scriptures and draw strength from and even that the New Testament might exalt as an example before us still intermingled in all of these stories we find the unflattering flaws of all of these men and women which means when we get to the Gospels and suddenly we begin to read about this man named Jesus Christ, it begins to shine like no other man in all of the Bible. Because everyone else had flaws except that man. You never conquer sin. It says everyone. And then it tells us the threshold of what it takes to make somebody a sinner. Cursed is everyone that continueth not in All things written in the book of the law to do them. So we got, let's just, let's just simplify it for you. Got 10 commandments, 10 of them. Doesn't say you have to break all 10. And it doesn't say that you have to break one all the time. No, what it says is this. A man is cursed If he does not continue in all things at all times and does them, not believes them. You know, there is a certain, here's a, here's another tactic Satan uses. He helps to ease our conscience from sin when we don't live according to the standards of God, but we believe according to the standards of God. This is what we would know as religious self-righteousness. Replete throughout all times, all peoples, all nations, religious self-righteousness. I'm going to ascribe to a doctrine, to a creed, to a religion, and I'm going to trumpet that all over. And I'm going to tell people all the things they need to do. And as Jesus came into this world and began his earthly ministry, he was surrounded by cliques of people that had been created some centuries before. And they were going around and they're walking around these towns and cities saying, this is what you need to do. And look at this sinner and look at all the wrong that you have done. Yet in their heart, they were breaking the law of God all of the time. Here, the scripture tells us, cursed is every person who just one time breaks the law of God. Cursed. It's an important. Cursed is every man. Or under penalty of God's judgment. This morning, here's what I want you to know about this text and about one of the truths of the Bible. When a man or a woman strives in their own flesh... To try to keep the law, or what well, we don't say that those we don't use those words today in American culture because those have religious undertones. But what we say is this: when we strive to be a good person, that's what we use today. But it means the exact same thing. We could put it in religious words, or we can put it in cultural words. Anyway, it's just meaning I'm striving to be perceived as or do things that are good. And I want you to know this morning that if you think that you're going to stand before God and give an account as a good person, and by that, he's going to offer forgiveness, you stand no hope. 
Because I want to tell you something about the law of God, which is revealed over and over and over. The law of God has no compassion. The law of God sees no mercy. The law of God does not care about intentions. Or in our culture today, the law of God stands for no excuses. The law of God does not make accommodations. Did you know that? Oh, that was one of the things. When I was a teacher, I taught for 10 years, almost 10 years. I hated accommodations. Here's the reason why. There's the small percentage of kids that needed some accommodations. I'll concede that. But once you cracked the door to the accommodations, guess what happened over my 10-year career? It came to the place that at the very end of my career, more than 50% of kids was getting accommodations. All you had to do is go with some sob story, some person in power, and they take the path of least resistance. And I find that to be a very damaging thing. You see, when I started in my career, I was unrelenting in the rules. I was very kind in the delivery of those rules. But I would tell kids, listen, if you don't do it exactly the way I say it, zero. I'd give them plenty of time to get it done. I would give them plenty of effort on my part to teach it to them. But the reason I operated my classroom this way was for this reason. I was trying to teach them subconsciously, this is the way God functions. God does not look at every sob story and say, you know what? I'm going to make a pass for you because what he knows is that will perpetuate people trying to come up with different reasons where he can, they can find an accommodation. I want you to know this morning, the law has no place for excuses. It was always some, I intended, I intended to do this, I intended to do that. You know, the law does not care about intentions. Here's what the law says. The law of God says this, if you transgress, you pay. It's unrelenting in that. And so, please hear me this morning. This is what Paul is setting up here. He's saying this, if you're going to strive to get to heaven through your good works... Realize that that path that you want to take, here's the threshold. Every moment of every day, every thought, every action, every belief, every deed has to be perfect. So this morning, here's what I'll do. I'll say this. You want to get saved by the works of the law? Try it. That's how you try it. Well, Paul in another place in the book of Romans says this. Here's what the result of that is. Every mouth is stopped. And all the world becomes guilty before God. You see, the law of God was brought in. He tells us later in this chapter. The law of God was brought in not to declare people righteous. But to broadcast to their own hearts their unrighteousness. This morning, here's what I want you to know. You go home and you you create some rule for yourself. Some religious rule for yourself, okay? You say, I'm never going to lie again. I'm never going to say a curse word again. I'm never going to... You go set those rules. And then you count the days till you break it. Because the Bible says if a law could have been given that would have bring about righteousness, then salvation would have been by the law. But the fact remains, you can't. There's no law that God could have said. How much more basic and simple could God could have gotten than in the Garden of Eden where he said, you see that thing over there? Don't touch it. Don't eat of it. And if you don't do that, you'll live. And what happened? Well, Adam and Eve desired it. They touched it. You know, people, people they guess how long. There's no way we know how long it was. My personal belief It wasn't long. It wasn't long. Why? Well, I have their nature dwelling in me. And if I feel anything like they felt, it wasn't very long. And he says this, cursed, standing in judgment. But you know, it goes on in the next part of the text in verse 13. And it tells us another part of this story. So it says this. That Jesus Christ came into the world and was made a curse for us. 
Oh, this is the beauty of the gospel. This is the fact that because you and I know that we have sinned and fallen short of God's glory, and that as a result of that, we stand before God cursed. And if you're here and you're lost this morning, or in other words, if you've never had a time and a place where you have felt God give you peace in your heart, forgive you of your sins, and absolve all of the wrong that you have ever done, and that you know beyond any doubt that God has forgiven you, I want you to know this morning that presently you stand in a state where you are cursed. You stand accountable before a holy God, and he will demand that you suffer the consequences for your wrong, as great or as small as they might be. Jesus, it tells us something additional about how he suffered. And it mirrors how lost people who die without God will one day suffer. It quotes another part of the book of Deuteronomy, I believe chapter 21, where it says, Cursed is every man that hangs upon a tree. So here back in Israel, this is what they would do. When a man was guilty of a capital crime, they would put him to death and they would hang his body on a tree. And as a result, he became a public spectacle. He became a public display to all people. And that was meant to be used as a deterrent. But it was also meant to be used As a point of public shame. Because any man or woman who suffered that fate, what would their legacy forever be? Would it not be one, would not the last image of that person be the shame that they bore? Would not the defining moment or the defining thoughts of their life be not their righteousness, but they were now defined by their unrighteousness? Jesus did not die of a common cold. Jesus did not die in some corner. Actually, in the book of Acts chapter 26, is Paul is standing before Agrippa. One of the points of Paul's argument is he says this, you know these things, Agrippa, because none of these things took place in a corner. You see, Jesus not only came into this world and suffered because he did. And the Bible teaches us in the book of Isaiah in the form of a prophecy in verses 5 and 6. It says that he bore our sorrows. He carried our griefs. That the chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we were healed. So we know, one, that he's the way he was killed because of our wrongdoing. That God imputed to him. You notice that verse that we read to you in verse 13. He made him a curse. God transferred your sin. I want you to think of some of your deepest, darkest sins. I want you to think of the things that if they were displayed, you would, you would have such shame, you would never be able to face somebody again. Those things were transferred to the account of Jesus Christ. And he wasn't, he did not have the luxury to die in a corner. My grandmother passed away a number of years ago. And when she did, I was really glad people didn't see her at the end. If you've ever seen anybody towards the end, it's not pretty most of the time. Your body begins to do things you just don't want other people to see. And so most of the time, wisely, family, physician, limit that to just a small few. And the reason is for the honor of the person who has died. Jesus did not die with honor. Jesus was made a public spectacle of. He bore our sins. He was ridiculed. Or in other words, everybody that walked by identified him. Look at that horrible man. That man's a sinner. He's a hypocrite. He proclaimed himself sent by God. He said he saved all of these others. Let him save himself. 
If we believe the historical count of where he was crucified at, it was on a main thoroughfare, a main road, that people who would enter and exit Jerusalem, many people were crucified upon this route because the Roman soldiers wanted people to know, if you're coming by here and you intend to come into this city and perform wrong, the last memory that people are going to have, all people, you're going to be made a spectacle of. You're going to be stripped naked. You're going to be beaten and bruised for your wrong. And those two men hanging next to Jesus, that's exactly what happened to him. And the one says, we indeed are experiencing this justly. Here we hang upon a cross in all of our shame. But this man, he has done nothing amiss. And yet all the people ridiculed. And the book of Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 tells us, That we ought to look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Or in other words, disregarding the shame. Oh, but there was shame. Oh, there was shame. Last week, we went back to Indiana for a couple days and a couple weeks ago, rather, and saw this girl that I used to teach at a restaurant. She was serving us as a waitress. And she, uh, one day in class, she, re- she reminded me of this. She actually had a video of it, which is pretty funny to watch. One day I was out in the hallway during passing period, and the bell rang, and I came back in. And, and she had fallen off a desk. And somebody had videoed recorded. I guess while I was out of the room, these two kids were running on the desk, racing each other. And they tried to get down real quick before I came in the room. And they were going to take a video of it and brag to their friends that they ran on the desk of Mr. Hicks's class. Well, when I got to the door, at that very moment, I saw her just take a tumble off the desk. And her face turned all sorts of shades of red. And I very calmly walked to my desk and just started taking attendance like nothing had happened. And I got up before the class and I started. And about after a few minutes, the kids said, aren't you going to punish her? And I said, no, you guys already did. They said, what do you mean? I said, how many people just posted that on Instagram? On social media? And about 25 kids raised their hand. And I said, the shame is enough. Because shame in and of itself is a form of a curse is a form of a punishment. And I want you to know this. Jesus took upon himself our curse in the shame of our sin. When somebody is not covered by the blood of Christ, when somebody is not saved by God's grace, when their sin has not been imputed to him and found forgiveness in the washing away of their sins and the application of his righteousness... I want to tell you about the shame that awaits you. Because for all of us that have been saved by God's grace, we can glory in this. If our sins were to be broadcast and heralded, if our sins were to be brought as an indictment before the judgment seat of God and used as an argument to cast us into hell, would it not be full of great shame But I want you to know this this morning, that for all of us that have been saved by God's grace, he was cursed and hung upon a tree as a spectacle that stands in your place. He bore your sin and took upon himself the shame that you bear for your sins. But for those that await God's judgment, that are not hid in the blood of Christ, I want you to know this, there is coming a great day of judgment. Where no sin will be hidden. We have many people here today that are shy. That would be common to any gathering like this, about this size. And perhaps there you sit in your seat and you're very shy. You don't like to talk. You don't like to testify. You don't like to pray at the altar. You don't like to do anything that might bring attention to yourself. And perhaps it's because you anticipate that if you do something clumsy or if you do something wrong, that all eyes will be bearing down upon you and that you will bear some sort of shame for what you've done. 
I, I suppose that that's natural. I suppose that all of us have had the experience of doing something embarrassing before people and feeling the shame. But let me tell you this. Christ has bore my eternal shame. Christ has carried my grief. Christ has put to death my embarrassment. And when I stand before the judgment seat of Christ... And when every person who has been cleansed by Jesus Christ stands before him, I don't know how the account will go. I don't understand how the judgment for a saint will go. But here's what I know. Shame will not be involved. Condemnation will not be involved. Perhaps a revealing in order to magnify the righteousness of Christ But God will not take my sin and use it as a bludgeoning club to guilt me and shame me before the world. But that is not the case for you, friend. Every person who exits this life, who thinks I've done righteously enough, I've done good works, I've been a good person. I want you to know that what awaits you is a sea of billions of people and of angels and of God sitting upon the white throne of judgment. And there you will stand, not covered, but naked before all. Not a secret of your mind. Not a secret of your life. Not the deepest, darkest sins that nobody in the world... You know, unsolved mysteries, you know those? Who killed this person? Who did this to this person? What really happened in that account? None of that will be concealed. And not only will it be revealed, but the shame of it will rest upon you then and forever. Oh, but praise God. Praise God for this truth. He has made him to be a curse for me. How beautiful. How simple, yet how beautiful that God in his uncomparable love said, I will take all of your sin. I will take all of your shame. And I will place it upon my only begotten son. And I will bruise him. I will crush him. I will shame him. Before all people to see. So that you don't have it. So that one day, as you stand in the portals of of glory, beyond or before the masses, you know, in people's mind, I think when you say something like that, for any of you that are afraid of a crowd, you think that would be the most terrifying thing about that situation. Oh, friend, no, it wouldn't. Oh, the billions will not intimidate you Standing there with the shame of your sin as much as standing before the Almighty God. Oh, I would volunteer a hundred times over to have my sins confessed before all the world that I would stand accountable before the Almighty God. And yet there you will stand before the masses and before God Himself. And at the core of His indictment will be this. My son was made a curse for you. Why didn't you believe? I didn't ask you to perform the works of the law. I didn't ask you to be a good person. I didn't ask you to be a Bible scholar. I didn't ask you to donate all your your money to the poor. I didn't ask you to pray for 24 hours a day. I didn't ask you to join the church and do all these things in order to obtain righteousness. I asked you to put all your faith in the slain sacrifice of my own son. And you refused. You rejected him just like those people who stood and cried out, crucify him. And friend, mercy is dead. 
and the law of God stands. You have a loved one today that doesn't know God? Two weeks ago, we talked about evangelism. I challenged each of you. In eight weeks, one person. Eight weeks, one person. And in this moment, if you stand protected under the provision that Jesus Christ has made for you, does that person. How will you feel now knowing that they will stand in that manner before the Almighty? And will there be a degree to which you are complicit in them standing unprepared to meet Him? This morning, I am overwhelmed by the provision that God has made for my sin and for my shame. Knowing that that offer stands available for all of us. Did you know that's one of my favorite things about preaching the gospel? One of my very favorite things, not just about the content of the gospel, but the manner in which that I can proclaim the gospel, is every single man, woman, and child that I run into has the access to this wonderful provision that God has made in Christ Jesus. I love that. I love that no matter what religion, no matter what nationality, no matter what creed here, just a few weeks ago, you all know that Hindu temple had all these people going there. There was parking there at Greenwood High School. Saw some of those people at Sam's Club. Isn't your natural inclination just to back away? Different, complete religion, different nationality, different language, different all things. And I stood there in that aisle looking at those people. I thought, you know what? They need the precise, exact same thing that our young people who seek the Lord here at church do. And the message is the same, and the provision is the same, and the love of God that beats in his heart for them to have it is the exact same as for my four sons. Christ became a curse for us. The Bible says this, he became, he hath made him to be sin for us that knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Here's the great exchange, and I'm going to close. Christ, perfectly righteous, tempted in all ways, just as we are yet, without sin. And I would say this, you know, very often, you may look through the scripture, and you may say, well, how is Christ tempted like this? This is how I've been tempted. How is I wonder he tempted like this? And you try to cause Christ to meet the threshold of your temptation. Let's turn that around for a moment. Have you had to try to meet the standard or have you been subject to the things which tempted Christ? When was the last time that Satan came before you and said, I'll give you all the kingdoms of this world if you'll bow down and worship me? Never happened to me before. Never happened to me that I was tempted in the greatest form of despair that a man could ever experience as Christ was there in the garden. And yet, despite the greatest tempter, despite the intention, you ever had somebody try to catch you? In something? You weren't doing anything wrong. They are trying to catch you in something wrong. To use as an excuse to harm you, Now imagine doing that for all three and a half years that you stood in people publicly every day amongst the masses. One word. And then they bring your words before you and they say, you see, look at this. You're you're defying our father Moses. You're breaking the laws that God gave to him. Tempting and tempting and tempting. And yet at every single point of temptation, Christ passed the test. And here's what you would expect. I had students in my class. I had set a standard This was particularly true in my AP class as I would set a standard and it was a lofty one. I took great pride that nobody in my AP class has ever got 100%. Why? Because nobody ever got a perfect on the AP exam. I wrongfully probably took pride in that. I'd set the standard real high and I would have these kids come in and they would come before school and they would come after school and they would send me emails and we would have special study sessions and we would do all of these number of things in order to prepare them for the test. And then when they did well, 
guess what they would do in front of the class? Brag. Perhaps rightly so. And those other kids who didn't were very quiet about their accomplishments. Hear what you would expect from Christ. I have done everything you have given me to do, he says in John 17 when he's praying to his father. I have met every standard. I have crossed every T. I have dotted every I. I have in no way broke the law at one moment of time, one period of weakness. Never. Wouldn't you expect him to triumph and say, look at me. Look what I've done for myself. Oh, but he doesn't. What does he do? He says, Father, give this to the account of those who despised and rejected me. And allow their failure and their shame and their wrong to fall steadily, directly upon me. That, my friend, is the great exchange. And so here we we benefit. You know, for the Christian, the more I study the scriptures, here's what my conclusion is. We worry and we fear and we think about the future, about what it's going to be like when all these different things come to pass both in our life and in the beyond. And we spend so much of our time anxious. We spend so much of our time in preparation for. And so often our weak flesh causes us to worry and tremble and fear about everything in the future of this life and the one to come. Oh, but the more I read the richness of what Christ did for us, the conclusion I come to is that the only thing that is before me is triumph in Christ. That's the only thing that is before me in this life and in the life to come. Why? Because the Bible tells me this, that nothing shall separate me from the love of Christ. The Bible tells me that he'll never leave me nor forsake me. The Bible tells me in the book of Psalms that when all the enemies are about me and they surround me and they try to catch me and they try to shame me and they try to harm me, not to fear because my fortress and my protector is always there. Oh, what lies before us in this life as Christians is nothing but good. And what lies before us in the great beyond, though it might be unknown at the moment, the moment you take your last breath, if you've been saved by God's grace, I want you to know this. Since Christ's righteousness has been granted to your account, and since when you stand before God in heaven to be judged, that it is His goodness that God is going to judge you for, all that awaits you is victory and riches. That's it. I take great peace and consolation in this life knowing that I will not stand based upon my own merit, but His. This morning, Christ was made a curse for us. Oh, why would you not welcome that protection? Why would you not seek with all of your heart to benefit from that great exchange? This morning, Christ offers it to you freely. Isn't that amazing? I could preach another hour about this. Why? Because it's, it's too wonderful for words. And as a church, let us never stray too far. You know, I was telling you a couple weeks ago, I said evangelize. I said, what do I talk about? I'll give you two things as a little recommendation. The foremost and first being the greatness of your Savior. Tell people about the peace in your life because of what he's done for you. Because of who he is. Talk about him. Oh, it is unnerving to people. I'll give you that. Oh, but it'll stick out, won't it? Don't you think in a world of people who talk all about themselves that when they come across somebody who says, you know what? I find peace in this life because of Jesus Christ. And it's not phony and it's not a catchphrase. It's real. I know him. I speak to him. I hear him. I have peace because of him. And that all started back. Here's number two. On the day that I met him. Talk about that with people. That's what people need to hear. 
That's the message that will save them. That's the power of God unto salvation. That's our message this morning. I pray if you're here and you're lost today, don't you want it? Don't you want him? No, I, don't, I don't want to say that like that. Don't, I don't want to say, don't you want it? Salvation is not an it. Salvation is a him. Him. He's our salvation. He's our everything. That's our message this morning. I wish, I so wish that I could bring before you the beautiful picture. But here's just one small fragment of the beautiful picture of what Christ has done for us. I hope that he will zoom out for you and let you appreciate more fully the greatness of Jesus Christ. That's our message this morning. One of you have something upon your heart. A praise, here's what I'll say. Does anybody else here want to praise Jesus Christ this morning? Uh, Let me, bear with me. When you come to church on Sunday morning, I'm going to make a request of you. From this point forward, I'm going to make a request of you. You've got a lot of trouble, and I've got a lot of trouble in life. And sometimes we need the prayers of our brothers and sisters to to help carry us. Don't bring that as your primary thing before us. That's not what this place is for. It's a secondary reason. It's not its primary reason. Here's what I'll ask you to do moving forward. Bring praise for Jesus with you. Bring that with you to here. You want to affect our young people here? You want to shape them? Let's, as a church, portray Jesus as somebody worth falling in love with. Oh, because our relationships and our lives and the testimony of those things, this is the beauty of the church, is that you have a vantage point to the person of Christ I don't have. And I have a vantage point to the person of Christ that you don't have. And so what do I do? I come and I project this picture before all of you and I say, this is who Jesus is. And this is his splendor and his greatness. And yet I only see it from my vantage point. And then one of you testify and you say, oh, brother Brad, let me tell the world of a different angle of his greatness. Oh, the the gospel is proclaimed by all of us, not by me. And when you hear and see the insufficiency of my message in portraying his greatness, it is incumbent upon you to color the rest of the picture that our young people and the world who walks into this building might see not a partial picture that one fallible man can paint of our Savior. Oh, but they could see all the portraits put together of his beauty and of his splendor. When you come to the house of God, come with the testimony of his greatness and lay that out before all of us. I believe in truth, that's what the early church did. They came, look at the book of Acts. Look at Paul's words, what are they about? Jesus, that's what they're about. People marveled at the person of Jesus. And when you're moved in your heart by his faithfulness, come tell us about it. When you're overwhelmed by the profoundness of his wisdom and his word, come tell us about his wisdom. When you're overwhelmed by peace in the midst of hardship, come tell us about the source of all peace. When you're a beneficiary of his grace and forgiveness, when you've been out in sin and you've been hiding it, and you went before him and you know and you sense his forgiveness, Come and bring it before us. Who cares that people gossip about the sin? Oh, if my sin can be used to magnify the grace and mercy of Christ, come and see my sin. Come and tell people about his mercy and his grace. Christ is good. Tell us about him. Come to the house of God. Because, oh, when I step down from here, Here's what I'll do when I drive home today. I got to preach tonight over at Fairview Memorial and I'll probably escape over here to this office. 
And the first thing that I'll do is I'll hang my head and I'll say this, God, forgive me for such an insufficient portrayal of the beauty of your glory. But God, help me again. That's altogether different. When I'm in the house of God and I hear all of these people portraying different angles of his glory, I rejoice in my spirit because I hear someone who sounds eerily familiar, not eerily, who sounds, I don't even know the word, who just sounds familiar, but I rejoice knowing that you are able to encapsulate a different amount of his glory and his greatness. I've been long-winded this morning. If you're a visitor, I typically am, but not this long-winded. I would love, I would love for the words that are heard by these walls to pivot this morning. From this moment, forever. That what these walls hear from this point out are much less about the sick and afflicted and are much more about the glories of Christ. We can, to some degree, discuss and relate to the sorrows and struggles of this life. Thus, we need not a lot of words about it because we can relate to it much easier. But we need a lot of words. We need a lot to be able to portray the glory of Jesus Christ. I pray from this moment forward that would be the case. Somebody have something on your heart this morning. I didn't intend to say all that, but I feel like I feel like it was from the Lord. And I pray it would settle in your heart.